0: You need Indeed.
1: And away we go. Episode 577 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, May 22nd, 2023. It is day one of the NFL's Spring League meeting in Minneapolis. Do not be late! To the meeting. (laughs) The meeting is taking place uh, Monday through Wednesday, May 22nd through the 24th. Uh, Now, we at the meeting are not expecting an owner's vote on the sale of the commanders. Uh, Jeff Miller told us that. Jeff Miller is the NFL's Executive Vice President of Communications, Public Affairs, and Policy. Uh, He, this past Thursday, in a conference call with reporters, said, quote, the league staff and finance committee will continue to review the details Of the transaction, we will provide membership with an update in Minnesota. End quote. So, a reviewing of the transaction, an update, but no actual owner's vote. Uh, But there will be conversation about the sale. So, who knows what might come up? Who knows uh, what might be said and by who? You know, you never know with these. NFL league meetings. You get a few cocktails in these billionaire owners with massive egos. These people might say all kinds of things. Hello and welcome to this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Uh, well, we on this podcast to say all kinds of things. We will be monitoring the NFL's spring league meeting for you. Uh, we did get this on Sunday night, a report from the Washington Post that the commanders are unlikely to be penalized for any possible tampering with retired Indianapolis Colts quarterback Andrew Luck last offseason. Uh, good. I was glad to read that. Getting punished by the NFL is not what our team needs. Our team has been punished for the last 24 years and being owned by Dan Snyder. But as we all know, that is changing, thankfully. Uh, and thank you, Josh Harris Group. Well, what is the Josh Harris Group buying the commanders going to mean for team president Jason Wright? Uh, Jason on Saturday spoke to reporters at a flag football clinic that the commanders conducted at their team headquarters. Uh, Jason did address his future with the team. Uh, He addressed the sale of the team. He addressed the stadium situation. Uh, next segment, you will hear the most significant things that Jason said, and I'll react to what Jason said. I'm then going to do the same with comments from Associate Head Coach slash Offensive Coordinator Eric Bieniemy. He on Saturday spoke to reporters. Uh, Eric talked about a variety of people and things with his offense, including quarterback Sam Howell. And speaking of Sam, I also have for you quite the endorsement of Sam. From former St. Louis Rams offensive coordinator and then head coach Mike Martz, the mastermind of the greatest show on turf, Uh, he says of Sam Howell, quote, I think he's worth getting excited about, end quote. Uh, I'll also get into comments from Commander's special teams coordinator, Nate Katzer. Yes, Nate Katzer. What other podcaster show (laughs) gives you Nate Katzer sound? Uh, But good old Nate. Uh, He on Saturday in speaking to reporters addressed uh, how receiver Dax Milne did on putt returns last season and addressed the season that kicker Joey Sly had. Uh, Some things worth examining. So a lot of commanders conversation is coming up as no podcast or show covers the commanders like this podcast does. But also on the show, I will discuss and dissect and revel in weekend series wins for the Nationals and the Orioles. The Nats won two or three games against the Detroit Tigers at Nationals Park, including a really strange 6-4 win on Sunday afternoon. Uh, That game included starting pitcher Josiah Gray allowing just one run in five innings despite issuing six walks, Uh, but also for the Nats over the weekend, third baseman Jamer Candelario on fire. Man, is he locked in right now? And speaking of being on fire, uh, the O's, they authored a three-game sweep at the Toronto Blue Jays. A number of big moments and performances by the O's in this series. Uh, The O's have the second best record in the majors. Uh, Before we get to some feedback, the Miami Heat, how about the Heat? The Heat is on. The eight-seeded Miami Heat now up 3-0 on the two-seeded Boston Celtics. In the NBA's Eastern Conference Finals, the Heat humiliated the Celtics on Sunday night, a 128-102 blowout of the Celtics. You just know (laughs) that this has the Wizards all kinds of excited. You see, all you have to do is make the playoffs, even as an eight seed, and you can be up 3-0 in the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, But what a gutless performance by the Celtics on Sunday night. Uh, Also, congrats to Maryland baseball. The number 20 ranked University of Maryland baseball team clinched its second consecutive Big Ten regular season championship. Uh, this via Michigan State's seven six win over Indiana on Friday night. Uh, Maryland is thirty six and nineteen overall, and sixteen and seven in the Big Ten. This is just the sixth overall conference championship in program history. I used to call Maryland baseball games for the student radio station, the mighty WMUC at Maryland. Uh, Maryland baseball, when I called its games, was, uh, shall we say, not so good, uh, but great to see the program in a great place these days. Uh, you can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me, the AlGaldi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Chubba in the United Kingdom on the sale of the commanders, writes Chubba. Uh, The news of Dan Snyder's departure is like getting an unexpected all-clear from terminal cancer. The joy is overwhelming, as you never truly believed that the day would come, yet you remain worried about how much damage has been done and what is next. Truthfully, no one has a clue what type of an owner Josh Harris will be, but he cannot be worse than the Esho that we had for 24 years. One thing that I am concerned about, though, Is leaks. It's an ownership group with all of these limited partners and their uncles and cousins. (laughs) There is no way to keep such a big group all on message all of the time. The fact that the Harris prospectus got leaked is proof of that. I guess this may be good news for you guys, always getting your hands on info to debate on your shows. Uh, Thank you for the email, Chubba. My man, Chubba, uh, yet another hardcore Commanders fan. In the UK. Boy, it never ceases to amaze me how many great fans of the team are in the UK. Hey, maybe that's why Dan Snyder has taken up residence in England. It now makes sense. Uh, Well, keep this in mind with that Josh Harris Group prospectus that was leaked to ESPN. The prospectus may well have been leaked by. The Harris Group for a strategic purpose. I made mention of this on last Thursday's show, episode 575, uh, shortly after my conversation with ESPN senior writer Don Vandata Jr., uh, who was excellent talking. Dan Snyder and the sale of the Commanders. But that ESPN report from last Tuesday afternoon, the report about the Josh Harris Group prospectus, the prospectus estimated that Virginia would offer the best incentives for a new Commander Stadium up to $1.5 billion. And that item got a lot of attention. And you know that officials in Washington, D.C. and Maryland saw that $1.5 billion number. And also, interestingly, D.C. Council member Kenyon R. McDuffie wrote a piece for the Washington Post that came out on Wednesday morning, headline, quote, bring the commanders home, and quote. My point is that the Harris group may have leaked this prospectus in order to get that $1.5 billion figure out there in order to incite what the team has always wanted for the new stadium, a three-way bidding war between Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. And that 1.5 billion dollar figure in theory put pressure on DC and Maryland to uh, step up their games in bidding for the new stadium. Uh email from Philip C. the MD on what is personally my biggest problem with the name commanders the lack of an obvious quality one syllable nickname like caps for capitals or that's for nationals. Uh, writes Philip. Hey, Al, love the show, as always. Thank you, Philip. Continues Philip. No fan of commanders, am I? But there is an in between solution that addresses the biggest problem with the commanders that it is unnicknameable. Uh, if we just add district to the name, making the team the district commanders, we can call them the Washington DCs, or the DCs for short. Fine, fine, fine. It's not one syllable, but that nickname is a heck of a lot better than anything available with just commanders. This would also likely make a total rebranding unnecessary, and that would save the Harris Group from the associated costs of a total rebranding and the risks of a total rebranding. The Harris Group can make the existing name a lot more embraceable and smoother off the tongue. What do you say? Uh, Thank you for the email, Philip. Uh, All right, so District Commanders, DCs for short. Well, I don't hate that, Uh, especially if the team's new stadium and team facility end up being in Washington, D.C. A true embracing of D.C. with a renaming to District Commanders, DCs for short. That could work, but would the official name of the team be the Washington District Commanders? or the District Commanders. Washington District Commanders would be a very long official name, although I guess people rarely say the full official names of teams anyway. District Commanders would be shorter, but would remove Washington from the official name. And personally, I do like having Washington as part of the official name. But yeah, DCs as a nickname could definitely work. Uh, well, the law firm of Paulson and Nace is a Washington D.C.-based family law firm that is always ready to fight for you if you have a case. Contact. Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you Paulson and Nace provides a passionate advocacy on behalf of injury victims designed to help them and their families move forward after the most difficult of times. And Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. How about this? Two verdicts against Merrill Dow totaling $132 million. Yes, Paulson and Nace has taken on Big Pharma and won. Uh, Clifton versus Georgetown University Hospital, a $50 million verdict for a young mother injured during childbirth. Uh, just last July, Bradley versus the United States of America, Polson and Nace won a case for which the United States government was paying nearly $1.8 million. So this to a former American University field hockey player because of a military doctor's failure to diagnose and treat the student for a 2011 concussion that left her with permanent symptoms. Paulson and Nace took on the U.S. government and won. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wrong but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. you. can also visit Paulsonandnace.com. That's Paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. A big help is if you subscribe to rate and review the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast by most platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. A subscription to the podcast costs you nothing. Make sure that you never miss an episode. Uh, you on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you on Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review can be just a sentence or two. Can't be more, but doesn't have to be. And thank you for subscribing, rating, and rating. And reviewing. So the Commanders on Saturday held a flag football clinic uh, for kids. The clinic was held at the team's indoor practice facility, The Bubble, at the team's headquarters in Ashburn, Virginia. Uh, various people with the team spoke to reporters at the event. In the coming segments, I'll take you through the best of what associate head coach slash offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy and special teams coordinator Nate Katzer had to say. But right now, let us get into what the team president, Jason Wright, had to say. Uh, These are rather interesting times (laughs) for Jason Wright. First of all, we, of course, have the sale of the team, uh, a sale that now is officially in place. uh, As we now, two Friday afternoons ago, May 12th, had the formal joint announcement from Commander's co-owners and co-CEOs Dan and Tanya Snyder and from Josh Harris on behalf of the Harris Ownership Group, the announcement announcing uh, that the Snyders and the Harris Group had entered into a purchase and sale agreement for the commanders. So we have the sale, which leads to questions about Jason Wright's future with the team, whether he'll be retained by Josh Harris, etc. We have the commander's quest for a new stadium picking up steam as uh, the sale of the team very much seems to have given new life to the quest from a standpoint of Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia all being interested. And we have what I believe is tension between Jason Wright and head coach Ron Rivera. I had heard off the record That they weren't exactly huge fans of each other. But, you know, you hear a lot of things off the record. So I didn't want to just go blabbing on the podcast about Jason and Ron uh, without having more certainty about what's going on. Well, Mike Jones, a national NFL writer for The Athletic, he used to cover the Redskins for The Washington Post. He on May 9th came out with a piece about Jason Wright. And there were two particularly noteworthy things in the piece A, Jason has aspirations to run an NFL team's football. Operations, not just business operations. And B, Ron Rivera declined to provide a quote for the piece. Now think about that. Ron is very media friendly. He talks to reporters both on and off the record quite a bit. Uh heck, he just this past Thursday afternoon, in fact, got an award, the 2023 Horrigan Award. Uh, he got that from the Professional Football Writers of America, the PFWA. Uh, this for, quote, his professional dealings with the media who cover the league, end quote. So we have Ron not being shy about talking to reporters, and yet Ron declined to comment on Jason Wright for this piece in The Athletic. And This, to me, was a sign that Ron and Jason aren't exactly on the greatest terms. I mean, it doesn't mean that, like, they hate each other necessarily, but there's no good reason for Ron not to have said something for the piece if Ron had something nice to say. Him declining to provide a comment for the piece makes you think that he didn't have anything nice to say and thus did not say anything at all. Remember, Ron Rivera and Jason Wright are on the same level in the commander's organizational hierarchy. Each guy reports to Dan Snyder. Jason is not under Ron. Ron is not under Jason. They are on equal footing. So I could see there being tension between the two, especially given uh, all of the things that uh, have gone wrong over the last few years. And I'll tell you this. uh, Do you remember... When Jason Wright last August on Twitter sounded off on Scott Abraham of ABC7 in Washington, D.C. for Scott's uh, line of questioning in a sit-down interview with uh, our team's then QB1 Carson Wentz, uh, I know for a fact that Ron was not happy about Jason doing that. Ron was not angry at Scott. Ron, if anything, was angry at Jason. Ron felt that Carson handled the questioning just fine. And by the way, Carson did handle the questioning just fine. And Ron felt that Carson didn't need to be defended. And Ron felt that this was a football operations matter, not a business operations matter. And thus Jason should have stayed in his lane, as the saying goes. So I don't think that it's a reach to think that there is some tension between Ron Rivera and Jason Wright, especially with this increased pressure on these guys now with new ownership coming in. So with all of that as a backdrop, uh, Jason Wright, he on Saturday spoke to reporters for 11 plus minutes. And, you know, Jason was his usual impressive self from a standpoint of being nice and demonstrating a great vocabulary. You know, Jason Wright is impressive, especially when you first hear from him. Uh, the problem, of course, has been that he, since being named a team president in August 2020, has uh, presided uh, over a number of blunders. Okay. Now, as I always say when I talk about this, how much of the phenomenon of blunders uh, is a function of working under Dan Snyder is hard to say. But it would be naive to put all of that uh, on Jason when he's working for one of the worst owners in major pro sports history. But at the same time, I think you're also being naive if you think that none of the blame for the blunders should go on Jason. Uh, This was Jason Wright on Saturday on where we stand in the approval process of the Josh Harris group as the new ownership of the Commanders.
2: Sure. Um, obviously, we're arm's length from it. Right. The family office and the NFL League office are working hard to get a, a quick approval done. We're supplying information where they have need. I don't expect it to take long, but I don't have an estimate on
1: timeline either. It's a, it's a league-run process, but I think everything feels like it's moving in the exact right direction. All right. Now, take a listen to this exchange between Jason Wright and Commander's Insider John Keim of ESPN. We begin with Jason's answer to a simple but significant question. What about Jason having contact with Josh Harris right now? Is that allowed? No. So, no, no, no.
3: So what does yeah. that do? If this goes on for another month and a half, two months, what does that do with this entire process for you guys?
2: Well, we continue to operate as much as we can in business as usual. I think that if there are major line items that come above a certain level some you know, major things that need to be done we'll talk to dan and tanya about it they can broker a conversation potentially on our behalf but in the meantime we're just going to keep on operating and, and hopefully it doesn't take long at all it doesn't seem like it's going to take long at all so
3: like for example if there's a if they rise if you guys want to do an extension with Monte sweat for example would, would that be something you would have to run by dan and
2: tanya? oh that's a good know? question that's a good question i don't think the football side um there's as much i'm, I'm thinking about the business side since okay. that's not a decision and I would have anything to do with. Um, on, the, on, on the football side, I don't know that they have some of those same restrictions because, you know, you, you kind of have to move forward. Um, on our side, certainly we have a threshold of investments, and, like, I, I know the tiers that we need to bring up, and we should be fine. We should be fine.
1: Okay. I don't know how strict Jason Wright and Josh Harris have to be in terms of not having contact with each other. You got to wonder if in fact they are having contact with each other, but just don't want to say so. But this is a strange time with especially the stadium stuff. I mean, people want to get the process moving, but the process in theory can't truly move until The new ownership is approved, although (laughs) sports business insider A.J. Perez of Front Office Sports, he on May 15th reported that uh, one of our commander's incoming limited partners, NBA legend Irvin Magic Johnson, met with Maryland Governor Wes Moore within the last month, uh, presumably, about the new stadium. How is that okay (laughs) if the Harris Group still has not been formally approved? So there is some gray area here. Uh, Speaking of the stadium, Jason Wright on Saturday on where we are at in the quest for a new stadium.
2: I mean, it's just an exciting time because uh, there will, as soon as this, it's, this transaction is done, there'll be some renewed energy around those conversations. And more importantly, getting the uh, strategy from uh, Josh and the new team that's coming in, how they see the, um, how they see the vision and, and, and things like that. So um, we just continue to have discussions with folks in Maryland, the district and Virginia um, better understanding their economic development aims, um, understanding the things that as as they get more serious about uh, this as a potential project, um, the different things that they would want in place, and just talking to leaders and engaging the community so that we understand how to be a good servant of them in this process.
1: Yeah, I like the phrase that Jason Wright used right there to describe Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, all being in on getting the new stadium with Dan Snyder selling the team, quote, renewed energy, end quote. Uh, Yes, that is one way of putting it, renewed energy. Uh, Dan Snyder selling the team could prove to be one of the greatest boons to business (laughs) that any pro sports team has ever had. Uh, Here was Jason Wright on Saturday on the Josh Harris Group regarding the new stadium.
2: I think the fact that they uh, that Josh has owned pro sports teams and is in the midst of uh, in later stage development discussions around a new venue within Philadelphia, they're pretty well educated on this, and I think they have strong perspectives. Um, they know the ecosystem, they know architects, they know all of that stuff. So I don't think so. Um, it's more about their strategic vision and what they want to accomplish and from what I've heard so far, it is something that is in line with um, what the community needs, you know, and that's, that's really the lens that
1: they've been coming at it with. All right. So the lease at FedEx Field expires in September, 2027, or at the very least an agreement for the commanders to play their home games at FedEx Field expires in September, 2027. And I say that because WUSA 9 investigative reporter, Eric Flack, He this past Thursday afternoon, tweeted, quote, the Commanders have an obligation agreement to play at FedEx. Not a lease, I am told. The team can stay there as long as it takes to get a new stadium, end quote. Well, whatever the case, we're now in late May 2023. September 2027 isn't that far away. Uh, This was Jason Wright on Saturday on the timetable for a new Commander Stadium. I think the
2: fact that they uh, that Josh has owned pro sports teams and is in the midst of uh, in later stage development discussions around a new venue within Philadelphia, they're pretty well educated on this, and I think they have strong perspectives. Um, they know the ecosystem, they know architects, they know all of that stuff. So I don't think so. Um, it's more about their strategic vision and what they want to accomplish. And from what I've heard so far, it is something that is in line with, um, what the community needs. You know? And that's, and that's really the lens that they've been coming at it with.
1: Yeah, here's the timetable. The sooner the better, okay? (laughs) That's the timetable. The sooner the better. The team cannot get out of FedEx Field soon enough. A complicating factor, though, is that the team isn't just looking to build a new stadium. The phrase new stadium is short for new stadium, new team facility, and other stuff. Uh, What the commanders are looking to build is a massive project, a project that is going to cost billions of dollars. But what the commanders are looking to do, a new stadium with a new team facility and other stuff, uh, is the way that NFL stadiums are going. Because building just some standalone stadium that hosts a handful of NFL games per year is not worth the cost. Uh, This was Jason Wright on Saturday on that. And then you'll hear a follow up exchange with commanders insider Ben Standing of The Athletic.
2: Any organization and any um, jurisdiction is looking at something that can provide year-round economic value, year-round foot traffic. That isn't something that sits there idle for a large portion of the year. And so, when you just think about it from a utilization lens, all of a sudden you start to think about an, an economic development or a um, real estate development that is more comprehensive, that includes retail and hospitality and green space and social services and things like that. Because then it's, ad- it's useful and productive year round. And I think smart city planners, smart community leaders are figuring out how things can be productive for citizens year round, right? So I think that's the, that's the first part. Um, and as it pertains to folks who are going around, I think most people thought about it through that lens at all as well because they want to get in line with what's best for the community.
4: The, uh, some setups have it with a practice facility and the stadium, are all in the same space. Others don't. Right. What are sort of the pros and cons of doing it all together versus putting it over?
2: Um, for gosh, community? that's interesting. I mean, I think teams, all te- different teams have done different models. You know, Dallas has a very successful model with two that are split. Um, others have very successful models with those that are completely co-located. Um, I think it all—it it, kind of depends on the size of the site, the buildability. It's a little difficult to answer. It's a little difficult to answer. Um, the pros and cons are, are probably more superficial than substantive <laughs> that I could offer you now. So it would really be site-dependent if we're talking about a specific site in an area. Co location here is challenging because of XYZ. So it's a little premature.
3: So I guess like with the RFK site, a, a little
4: bit small a question of like, if it me can be used for... Uh,
2: you know, like that but what a big, big I think that would that. all de- Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's like it's way, it's way premature to have a discussion about any specific site for sure, like, way premature.
1: Well, it may be premature for Jason Wright to discuss the RFK Stadium site, but it is not premature for us to discuss the RFK Stadium site. There, especially recently, has been a lot of discussion about the Commander's new stadium being at the RFK Stadium site. And we all know the RFK Stadium site as the site of the Commander's next stadium is what many, if not most, fans of the team want. As I have said, I do not think that the next stadium has to be uh, on the RFK Stadium site, or has to be in Washington D.C. I do think that a new Commander Stadium in Maryland or Virginia could work. I think that traffic is going to be a challenge wherever you put the stadium, including Washington D.C. And yes, a metro stop would help, and you absolutely want a metro stop close to the new stadium, uh, even though Metro has its own problems. I mean, Metro in recent years has undergone a lot of construction, has had to undergo a lot of repairs. And sadly, there have been a lot of issues uh, with Metro and issues at Metro stations. I mean, just last week, an 18-year-old man was shot inside the Wheaton Metro station in Montgomery County, Maryland. He ended up dying. I mean, just awful. But Bottom line, I'm not against the Commanders' next stadium being in D.C. I just don't think that that next stadium has to be in D.C. I think that a stadium in Maryland uh, or Virginia could work. And, you know, one of the things that I have heard in terms of, well, why do you want the next stadium to be in D.C. is, well, that's where the team stadium was in the team's glory days. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But that's not a reason to put the next stadium there. Like the glory days were awesome, of course. But the glory days were a long time ago. 1982 through 1992 was a long time ago. A lot has changed since the glory days. Saying that D.C. would be the best site for the new stadium simply because that's where the team stadium was when the team was really good in the 1980s and early 1990s, that's not a good enough reason (laughs) for the new stadium to be in D.C. to say nothing of the fact that the RFK Stadium land is federally owned, and to say nothing of the reality of a lot of Washington, D.C. residents not wanting the new stadium to be in D.C. It is going to be so interesting where this new Commander Stadium ends up being, but I do think that a new stadium could work in Washington, D.C., Maryland, or Virginia. I think that you have to be open-minded with this. You know, it's not... 1983 anymore. Uh, one more for you from Jason Wright on Saturday. What about his future with the team? When Josh Harris's purchase of the commanders is finalized, then what for Jason Wright? Does he stay with the team in his current role as team president? Uh, does he get reassigned to a different role with the team? Uh, does he get fired? This was Jason on Saturday on potential massive turnover for the commanders in their business operations once the sale becomes complete.
2: Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I do know that um, we've had a lot of turnover in the last two and a half years to establish new ways of working, expand the workforce. Um, and if anybody who's coming into organization needs to evaluate it top to bottom and assess our efficacy But I I do know that we have a good operation running. And so we're just going to keep on going. We're just going to keep on going. It's the best thing that we can do is continue to build the season ticket member base, see the momentum we've had um, in the growth of the business overall, and really take advantage of this unique once-in-a-generation opportunity to get us back where we need to be in, in business performance.
1: Yeah, it's very hard to say what's going to happen with Jason Wright with the commanders. Uh, Josh Harris and his top partner in the Harris Group, Mitchell Rails, uh, these guys know business. Their assessment of Jason Wright and what they do with Jason Wright are going to be fascinating. Uh, The wild card in all of this is if Josh Harris already has in mind someone who he wants running the team's business operations and that person is not Jason Wright. But of course, it may be that Josh Harris plans on keeping Jason Wright. We just don't know. I do know this. Jason Wright on Saturday speaking to reporters for 11 plus minutes was a continuation of a recent trend of Jason being very out there. He has been granting interviews. He has been speaking publicly. And to me, he is lobbying to keep his job as team president. I don't know how you read this any other way. Jason Wright spoke with various reporters at the NFL's annual league meeting, which took place in Phoenix, Arizona, March 26th through the 29th. Uh, Jason Wright was on an installment of the Adam Schefter podcast that dropped on April 18th. Uh, Jason Wright was on the Pat McAfee show on April 28th. Jason Wright was on CNBC's last call with Brian Sullivan on May 1st. And as you may recall, Uh, Jason on CNBC flat out said that the news of Dan Snyder selling the Commanders had spiked the team's selling of Swedes. Jason said that Dan selling the team had created, quote, anticipation of this franchise returning to what it once was, end quote. Jason has been distancing himself from the Snyders and has been talking up the sale of the team and has been talking up the incoming ownership. But what that ownership is going to do with Jason once its purchase of the commanders is finalized uh, remains a big question. But what is not in question is what is the number one catering service in the DMV? The answer is catering by Uptown. Catering by Uptown is the DMV's number one catering service. It is a family business that prides itself on its signature dishes and flawless presentations. And Catering by Uptown goes beyond just food. Catering by Uptown offers personalized consultation and event planning assistance that is outstanding, including venue coordination, custom catering menu selection from over a thousand delicious dish selections, and a day of event coordinator who will make sure everything runs smoothly. From putting together and executing a menu, to picking linens, to selecting an excellent florist, Catering by Uptown is committed to meeting your needs and exceeding your expectations. Whether you're having a wedding or a corporate event, an intimate gathering or a gala, Catering by Uptown is the way to go. Visit cateringbyuptown.com and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent ya. Check out the reviews, nearly 500 reviews, averaging 4.6 out of 5 stars. Visit cateringbyuptown.com. That's cateringbyuptown.com and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent All right, so we last segment talked about the comments of Commanders Team President Jason Wright at the Commanders of Flag Football Clinic this past Saturday. Also speaking to reporters at the event was the team's new associate head coach slash offensive coordinator, Eric Bien-Aimé. Uh The Commanders began their off-season program on April 17th. The team has its first batch of actual off-season practices, what are called OTA practices, organized team activity practices, Tuesday through Thursday, May 23rd through the 25th. Uh, this was the enemy on Saturday on how the off season is going. And then you'll hear a follow-up exchange with commander's insider, Nikki Javala of the Washington post. We've been going through our OTAs, our phase two,
4: uh, portion of it. I've uh, been doing some installs and obviously getting, uh, some work out on the field. The guys have done a heck of a job. Uh, I think they're doing a great job of learning, but on top of that, they're doing a heck of a job of going out there and, uh, executing what i expect them to do it's been fun there's a good group of men on top of that they've been working their tails off so i'm excited about the next phase you kind of mentioned this in your presser about the difference in not just practicing you know as a system you're familiar with but you come here and now you're installing it and teaching it to coaches and players mm-hmm. just how much different is that for you um just kind of starting over in that regard you know what it's 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 different, and I say this, and and hopefully this doesn't get taken the wrong way. Because when you've been in uh, a place for 10 years, you have a tendency to take certain things for granted. And so, what this has done, it's helped me to go back and dot all the I's and cross all the T's, and making sure that I'm giving the proper instruction and not just taking anything for granted because I knew, such and such coach would be able to explain this or be able to take the time to, to go over this detail in this particular meeting. So my, my goal is to make sure that I'm giving all the instruction and making sure these guys are tuned and ready, all right? So if any question come up, now they can have that answer, all right? So the biggest thing is just making sure that everybody has a complete understanding. And if they don't have an understanding, it's my job to make sure that I give them the answer.
1: All right, and hopefully Eric enemy is at least part of the answer to the problem of Washington having had a bad offense for each of the last five seasons, 2018 through 2022. The enemy was an offensive assistant for the Kansas City Chiefs for the last 10 seasons. He was the Chiefs running backs coach for the 2013 through 2017 seasons. He was the Chiefs offensive coordinator for the 2018 through 2022 seasons. The Chiefs in each of these five regular seasons with the enemy as offensive coordinator finished in the top three of the NFL in total offense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric. 2018 number one, 2019 number 3, 2020 number 2, 2021 number 3, 2022 number 1. Washington's best ranking in total offense per DVOA for a regular season from 2018 through 2022 was number 21 for the 2021 regular season. So from 2018 through 2022, while the Chiefs for each regular season were finishing in the top three in the NFL in total offense per DVOA. Washington was never finishing better than number 21. Now, of course, a response to all of this is... Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. And no doubt, Andy Reid is one of the best offensive head coaches in NFL history. Patrick Mahomes may be the single most gifted quarterback in NFL history. And these two guys are the two biggest reasons for why the Chiefs have been such an offensive force. I mean, it's impossible to ignore that Eric Bieniemy's five seasons as Chiefs offensive coordinator coincide precisely with Patrick Mahomes' time as the Chiefs' QB1. But more than one thing can be true. It can be true that the biggest reasons for the Chiefs' offensive success over the last five seasons have been Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. It can also be true that another reason for the Chiefs' offensive success over these last five seasons was Eric Bien-Aimé. Uh No, Eric Bieniemy during his time as Chiefs' offensive coordinator was not the team's primary offensive play caller. Andy Reid was, but Bieniemy was intimately involved in game planning and play designing. Uh, So what about Sam Howell? Patrick Mahomes, in his rookie season, 2017, played in just one regular season game. It was the Chiefs' final regular season game, a game that he started. He did well in that game. He then became the Chiefs' QB1 for the 2018 season. Remember, the Chiefs in March 2018 officially trading their QB1, Alex Smith, to the Redskins. And Mahomes immediately became one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Well, Sam Howell, in his rookie season, 2022, played in just one regular season game, it was the commander's final game, a game that he started. He did well in that game. And now he's being positioned to be the commander's QB1 for the 2023 season. Some eerie parallels between Patrick Mahomes and Sam Howell, right? Uh, well, here was Eric Bieniemy on Saturday on how Sam is doing.
4: Sam's done a heck of a job. Sam's uh, very professional. He's very critical of self. He's very self-aware. But on top of that, he's talented. Okay, he wants to be the very best that he can be, and when it's all said and done, with he just want to do whatever he can
1: to help this team to grow in the right direction. A lot of good qualities for Sam Howell, as described by Eric Bieniemy, right there. While we are talking, Sam Howell, did you see what Mike Martz said about Sam Howell? Uh, Mike Martz, best known for his time with the St. Louis Rams, right? Uh, Mike Martz was the Rams offensive coordinator for their 1999 Super Bowl championship season. He was their head coach for the 2000 through 2005 seasons and included in that mix was a 2001 NFC championship season. Uh, Mike Martz, by the way, prior to that time with the Rams was Skins quarterbacks coach. Uh, he was the Skins quarterbacks coach for the 1997 and 1998 seasons. Anyway, Martz now is with The 33rd team, he did a video breakdown of Sam Howell. And Martz, in the video breakdown, uh, very complimentary of Sam. Uh, Now, Martz did acknowledge some things that Sam needs to work on, but Martz also said a lot of nice things about Sam. Take a listen to some of what Martz said.
5: So I think all in all with Sam, when you look at him, there are some bad habits just being sloppy in college that, that can get fixed. And you can see why I think the commanders, when you go back and look at him, The physical talent is beyond reproach. I mean, he's got the big arm. He's got touch. Um, He's really an accurate guy. Big, strong legs, which helped him really drive the ball, too. Um, You know, he's the footwork in college, very sloppy. It's not where it needs to be now. The only thing I'd really question about him is his decision-making, you know, trying to extend plays that shouldn't be extended, you know. But he did a great job there in his first outing there against the Cowboys. For the most part, he made pretty good decisions and uh, protected the ball. And that's the big thing with him is when you get into that pocket and you're in the grasp, you can't get rid of it. Don't try to make a throw when you're in the grasp. you got to get down. you get outside and they're chasing you, throw it away or or, or get down. Don't try to make a miracle play. So those dumb things that that you want to get out of a quarterback, those are easy to coach out of a guy as long as he's willing to do that. The only other thing that I don't, because I haven't seen enough of him, is his ability to read and see things and not predetermine things, which he kind of wanted to do in college. So, you know, against the zones of, of working from a deeper throw down to a shallow throw, going through a bit of a progression, there's not a lot of that in college or in that uh, Cowboy game. Uh, that would be a question I just don't know. Obviously, the commanders have seen that in practice, and they're happy with it. But as a talent, when you look at him and the progress that he's made, I think he's worth getting excited about. And I think they've done a good job of him.
1: So, Mike Martz on Sam Howell, quote, I think he's worth getting excited about, end quote. So allow yourself to get excited about Sam Howell. Uh, Martz praised Sam for his arm, his touch, his accuracy, his legs. Uh, Look, all of this is just talk. I get that. Uh, Nobody has any true idea. What Sam Howell will be as an NFL quarterback, but it's okay to have hope. It's okay to have excitement. It's okay to be bullish. Uh, But yeah, I mean, no doubt, like this is all just talk and all of this could look uh, to be rather foolish, you know, say six months from now. Okay. I get that. Uh, Heck, there's no guarantee that Sam Howell will even be the commander starting quarterback. Uh, but Mike Martz does no quarterbacks. I mean, his Rams offenses, especially those for the 1999 and 2001 seasons, the greatest show on turf, right? I mean, those are some of the best offenses in the NFL over the last 30 years. Uh, Well, like I said, there's no guarantee that Sam Howell will even be the commander's starting quarterback. And that's because head coach Rod Rivera has said that Sam will compete with Jacoby Brissett for the team's starting quarterback job. Uh, The commanders in March signed Jacoby as an unrestricted free agent, a one-year, $8 million deal. This was Eric Biennemi on Saturday on Jacoby Brissett. Jacoby is the ultimate professional. He's been around this business for a long time. He's been a great addition in that
4: room just from the experience that he's had. And on top of that, he can share that experience with
1: men in that room. All right. What about Eric Bieniemy's offense with the commanders? What exactly is that offense going to be? What is the Eric Bieniemy system? Uh, here was Bieniemy on Saturday on that.
4: Well, there is a system, but... The thing is, I want to make sure the system can work with the players that we have. And so, at the end of the day, it's not about, quote-unquote, the system. It's about what the players can do and how well they can do it and helping us to get across that finish line. But when it's all said and done, yes, we will throw it and we're going to run it, just like every other team. But when it's all said and done, we're going to play great team ball and find a way to making sure that we're giving ourselves the best opportunity
1: to be the best that we can be. Okay, so a non-answer answer from Eric Bieniemy right there. Obviously, his offense, his system uh, should be tailored to the talent that the team has. So it was good to hear Bieniemy say that. Uh, we know what the Chiefs were with Bieniemy as offensive coordinator, but we also know that Andy Reid ran that offense, not Bieniemy. Now that Bieniemy is actually truly running an NFL offense, what is it going to be like? Uh, we don't know. I mean, he may not know. You know, a lot of this is trial and error. We do know that the enemy is a big fan of the man who the Commanders took in the sixth round of the 2023 NFL Draft, Kentucky running back, Chris Rodriguez Jr. Rod Rivera has told us that the enemy is a big fan of Rodriguez. Uh, this was the enemy on Saturday on why he likes Rodriguez. He plays hard. He runs hard.
4: Uh, he's a player that has good hands. You know, he does a lot of things good. At the end of the day, when you're coaching that position, you want the best football players who happen to play in the running back position. So he's one of those guys that brings a different element, not so much that all the other guys are not different, but he can run it, he can catch it, but on top of that, he can protect the quarterback when asked.
1: Yeah, Chris Rodriguez Jr., a physical violent between the tackles runner. And interesting to hear Eric Biennemi note that Rodriguez can catch. He at Kentucky did not do a lot in the way of pass catching. You know, you think about the commander's perceived top three running backs. All three are bigger backs. Uh, The team lists Brian Robinson Jr. as being 6'1 and 228 pounds. Lists Antonio Gibson is being 6'2 and 220 pounds. And Lists, Chris Rodriguez Jr. is being 5'11 and 224 pounds. Eric the on Saturday on the Commander's perceived top three backs being three bigger backs.
4: Well, normally big bodies can move people, right? It's, uh, you, you love when those big bodies can go out there and change the outlook on the game and make those guys make business decisions, you know, in the open field uh, throughout the course of the game. And I'm talking about secondary defenders. But uh, these guys, uh, they they're, they're all a big, but yes, they all bring something different to the table. But I will say this, okay? They all have that temperament that they got to be the best football player. Just because Brian has displayed that he can run it physically, he's also a kid that can go out on the perimeter and make catches. He's also proven that he has great hands. And on top of that, he's willing to protect the quarterback, okay. such as AG. So I'm excited about what everybody brings to the table. and. These guys get it, they understand it, they're into it. And now it's time to
1: just to keep implementing and moving forward and see what happens once we get to uh, opening day. Yes, opening day, uh, less than four months away. Think about that. September 10th, home to the Arizona Cardinals.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
1: More now from the Commander's Flag Football Clinic on Saturday. Uh, Also speaking to reporters was the team's special teams coordinator, Nate Katzer. Uh, The Commanders for the 2022 regular season were number seven in the NFL in overall special teams efficiency per Football Outsiders DVOA metric. The team overall had a very good special team season last season, but a nit to pick uh, was punt returns. When it comes to yards per punt return, For the 2022 regular season, there were 17 qualified punt returners. Uh, Commanders receiver slash punt returner Dax Milne, he ranked just 12th out of those 17 punt returners with a yards per punt return of just 7.78. Oh, by the way, uh, ranking second among those 17 punt returners was Los Angeles Chargers receiver slash punt returner DeAndre Carter at 11.69. DeAndre Carter, of course, was with Washington for the 2021 season. He last offseason was allowed to leave the team via unrestricted free agency for basically a nothing contract. Carter in April 2022 signed with the Chargers via a one-year $1.135 million contract. That was it. Uh, Carter in the 2021 regular season was very good for Washington on kickoff returns. He finished number three in the NFL among all qualified players in yards per kickoff return at 25.1 and was number two in the NFL in total kickoff return yards at 904. But anyway, here was Nate Katzer on Saturday on what he made of Dax Milne's 2022 season as a punt returner.
6: Number one, I think, Watson in our special teams last year, you saw the benefit of when we were able to get takeaways and what that did for our football team. And just possessing the ball can be boring to the outside world, look it in, but for us, it's the number one thing. The main thing we look at with both of the returners, with AG and Dax, is how can we get better? And with Dax, for example, he took a couple zero returns, Because here's a perfect example, the ball bounces on the ground and it's rolling towards our goal line. So if he just stops it and stops it from rolling 20 yards, that's like an explosive return. But as soon as he takes and catches that rolling ball, the return, the tacklers are right there. So that goes as a zero. So when people look up at the, if he had a return for 10 and one of those, he's averaging, oh man, we're only averaging five yards, but he really shaved off 20. So. Just making, and with him, not poor decisions, but just decisions of when to run with it could help his numbers, but his reliability was good for a first year, so I think he can take steps forward.
1: Yes, he can. But, you know, will Dax Milne even be the commander's punt returner for this coming season? Heck, will he even be on the team this coming season? Uh, You know, a guy getting a good bit of attention is one of the commander's undrafted free agents, UCLA receiver Kazmir Allen. Or (laughs) as commander's head coach Ron Rivera at his uh, rookie minicamp press conference on May 12th called Kazmir Allen. Allen Kazmir.
6: One of the more notable names, and I'm going to have to look it up and so I can say it
3: properly, but he's a young man we got out of UCLA. Uh, UCLA. Uh, he'll wear number 10 out there, Allen Casimir.
1: Yes, Ron, thank you. Well, whatever you want to call the guy, Casimir uh, Allen, he at the UCLA Pro Day on March 15th, measured as being just 5'8 and 3 eighths of an inch tall. He is not But explosive he is. Uh, Kazmir Allen is a Curtis Samuel type receiver, a combo receiver running back. But he also for UCLA was a kickoff returner, did not do punt returns, although presumably he could. Uh, Kazmir Allen over his last two seasons at UCLA, 2021 and 2022, averaged 27.03 yards per kickoff return over 39 kickoff returns. Here was Nate Katzer on Saturday on Kazmir Allen.
6: He's uh, in phase two, and I know phase two seems like it's very limited what we can do, and it is, however, those guys can now catch jugs because they can have helmets on for safety reasons. No one else can, but when they're on the jugs machine, they can. He's smooth. He's working on his catch mechanics. We've made just a couple little adjustments with him that he's already adopted. Now, the thing with the rookie returner is just to see them as the lights get brighter and brighter. Because when you first get to an NFL team, you're, when you're just catching them at practice, there's pressure there. Because you're sitting there going, if I don't catch these, I'm not going to be around here very long. So they're dealing with pressure right now. But as he gets comfortable here, then the pressure is going to mount as the, bright, the lights get a little brighter, whether it's joint practices, team drills that we do, and then ultimately the preseason games. And then you have to make decisions on guys like that, because you've heard me say it a bunch. The number one characteristic of a returner has to be reliability in catching the football. So, but he right now looks like he's got a nice skill set. All right.
1: And then what about the commander's kicker, Joey Sly? So Joey Sly in the 2022 regular season went 25 of 30 on field goals and just 24 of 28 on extra points. Now he did come up huge in that 32-21 upset win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Monday Night Football in week 10. Uh, the Eagles went into that game 8 and 0, exited that game 8 and 1, and Joey Sly was a big reason why. He in that game went 4 for 4 on field goals, three of which were 40 plus yard field goals. But Sly in the 26-6 win over the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field in week 18 did struggle. Uh, he went just to 2 4 on field goals and just 2 of 3 on extra points. Football Outsiders has an advanced way of analyzing NFL teams on field goal attempts and extra point attempts. I won't bore you with the methodology, but uh, with field goals, it has to do with the distance of the field goal attempt and the average performance on all field goal attempts from that distance over the previous 15 seasons. Uh, Anyway, the commanders per this metric ranked just 21st out of 32 NFL teams in field goals and extra points for the 2022 regular season. Nate Katzer on Saturday on how he thought Joey Sly did last season.
6: I thought Joey was really solid last year and the numbers showed that. I wish the Dallas game would have ended better for all of us. And as you guys know, making a kick is about more than the kicker. But Other than that game, it's, uh, you know, I thought he had a really solid year. And obviously the the huge game up in Philly, I mean, he made two long ones that were, they're all crucial, but that was a bit, so he had some really big moments for us. I just wish it would have ended a little better.
1: Yeah, Joey Sly's 2022 season did not end well. Uh, He last season overall wasn't awful. He just wasn't great. Although, like I said, he did come up big in the team's biggest win of the season, that win at the Eagles on Monday Night Football. All right. So the 2023 Nationals are not exactly a great offensive team, but they did just have an impressive offensive series. Uh, the Nats over the weekend won two or three games over the Detroit Tigers at Nationals Park Friday night and 8-6 loss, but Saturday a 5-2 win and Sunday afternoon a 6-4 win as the Nats, the boys, uh, they now are 20 and 27.
3: I'm proud of the boys.
1: That is correct. Nat's manager, Davey Martinez, proud of the boys, and he should be. Uh, you know, I've talked about. This Nats team very much lacking in hitting for power, and lacking in hitting for power the Nats very much are, but consider what happened in this series. The Nats, in their 8-6 loss to the Tigers on Friday night, had just seven hits, but six of them were extra base hits, uh, two homers and four doubles. The Nats, in their 5-2 win over the Tigers on Saturday, had nine hits. Five of them were extra base hits, a homer and four doubles. And The Nats, in their 6-4 win over the Tigers on Sunday afternoon, had a whopping 18 hits, including, amazingly, 12 hits over the first three innings. Now, just three of the 18 hits were extra base hits, but still, 18 hits are 18 hits. The Nats on Sunday afternoon wrecked the Tigers' starting pitcher, Joey Wentz. Uh, He allowed six runs in two innings. A bad last nine months for guys (laughs) with the last name of Wentz in games involving Washington teams on Sunday afternoons. And actually, Joey Wentz, uh, like our former commander starting quarterback, Carson Wentz, uh, listed as being 6'5". But uh, I digress. Uh, The Nats on Sunday afternoon had the 18 hits, despite Davey Martinez not playing three regular position players. Uh, Catcher Kate Bitt-Ruiz got the day off, shortstop C.J. Abrams got the day off. And second baseman Luis Garcia got a second consecutive day off. Uh, He in this series only played in one game. Davey, during his pregame press conference on Sunday morning, said that uh, Garcia needed a mental break. But the Nats, even without Ruiz Abrams and Garcia, totaled the 18 hits, although the Nats did only score six runs. And I say only because 18 hits should lead to, I don't know, eight, nine, ten runs, right? At least. Uh, Well, the Nats on Sunday afternoon, they tripled up the Tigers in terms of hits 18-6, and yet the Nats only won by a 6-4 count. Uh, Two reasons why. A, the Nats went just 2-16 for with runners in scoring position, and B, the Nats worked zero walks. But still, some impressive offensive performances by the Nats on Sunday afternoon. Jamer Candelario, boy, is this guy on fire right now. He on Sunday afternoon as an ad-starting third baseman and number two batter, four for five with four singles. He on Saturday as an ad-starting third baseman and number four batter, two for four with a solo homer and an RBI double. Jamer Candelario over his last seven games now, 16 for 28. Think about that. 16 for 28 with two home runs, a triple, four doubles, nine singles. And a walk. Uh, Jamer Candelario this season had not been doing well. Uh, he now is doing well. We can firmly say that. Uh, I mentioned K.B. Ruiz and C.J. Abrams not playing on Sunday. Their replacements played well. Riley Adams and Ildemar Vargas. Uh, Adams as an at starting catcher and number nine batter, four for four. He had a solo homer, two two-out doubles and a single. Uh, and Ildemar Vargas, he is an at starting shortstop and number seven batter, two for four with a two-run homer and a single. Uh, the new daddy, Joey Manessis, uh, he on Sunday afternoon as an Nats starting DH and number three batter, three for five with an RBI single and two other singles. The Nats on Friday activated Manessis off the paternity list, which he had been on since last Wednesday. And I want to give props to Lane Thomas. Uh, he in each of the three games in this series was an Nats starting right fielder and number one batter. He on Friday night went one for three with a two-run homer and a walk. He on Saturday went three for four with a double, a two run single, and another single. And he on Sunday afternoon went one for five with a single. Lane Thomas for this month of May has the following slash line a batting average of 325, and on base percentage of 365, and a slugging percentage of 613. Outstanding numbers. Uh, the Nats beat the Tigers 6 4 on Sunday afternoon, despite uh, Nats starting pitcher Josiah Gray issuing six walks. Uh, this was a strange win by the Nats on Sunday afternoon. Now, Gray allowed just one run in five innings. So the run prevention was there, but uh, the control was not. Again, six walks. Uh, Gray over 88 pitches through 48 strikes versus 40 balls. Uh, and he recorded just two strikeouts, but he did give up just three hits, all of which were singles. So his ERA went down. Uh, Josiah Gray now in this 2023 regular season, 10 starts, and ERA of 265. But uh, the walks on Sunday afternoon clearly stand out. Uh, you know, we've talked about Josiah Gray's home run problem uh, that he is not having this season. Uh, Well, Gray also has had a walk problem. Uh, Gray, for the 2022 regular season, uh, issued a National League Worst 66 walks. Uh, This was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Sunday afternoon on Josiah Gray.
3: Yeah, he just he wasn't he wasn't very sharp. You know, his cutter wasn't wasn't as good as it was. what what I did like about him he comes out in that fifth inning and he was a lot better i mean his mechanics were better he he was staying closed his head was in a good position and he threw the ball you know vila was 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 up in that inning man but you know for me you know he's he's been you know he's been pitching well six you know seven um today was today was a shorter day for him and I wanted to get him out of it. he had you know five innings 87 88 pitches and I, I told Hickey, okay, that's enough. I mean, I, I mean, this will be his day where, you know, we shortened it up a little bit for him. And um, but he ba- he battled.
1: Yeah, Josiah Gray on Sunday afternoon most certainly did battle. Uh, as for the Nats' other starting pitchers in this series win over the Tigers, another good outing by Patrick Corbin. Uh, Corbin in the five-two win over the Tigers on Saturday had a quality start for the sixth time in seven starts. Uh, A quality start, as many of you know, is no more than three earned runs allowed and no fewer than six innings pitched. Uh, Corbin on Saturday, two runs in six innings. Uh, He gave up six hits, a homer, and five singles. He issued no walks. Uh, He did record just three strikeouts, but he threw a lot of strikes. 74 pitches, 49 strikes versus just 25 balls. What's funny is that Corbin did not get off to a good start. Uh, Corbin, in the top of the first, allowed two runs on a leadoff first pitch single by Matt Vierling up the middle and a two out, two run homer by Spencer Torkelson to left center field for a 2 0 Tigers lead. But Corbin, for the rest of his outing, was good. And I mentioned the no walks. Do you know that Patrick Corbin, over his last four starts now, has issued a total of just one walk? How about that? Who is this guy? Uh, Patrick Corbin, over his last seven starts now, has allowed just 16 earned runs in 42 and a third innings. That works out to an ERA of 340. Good for Patrick Corbin. I mean that, and I hope like heck that he keeps this up. Uh, Now, (laughs) the Nats 100% should be open to trading Patrick Corbin this season if a true trade market form develops. Uh, I'm not saying that the Nats should just give him away, but the Nets cannot lose sight of the bigger picture. They are a rebuilding team. They need to continue to add to their inventory of prospects. Uh, this season is Corbin's age 33 season and the fifth season of a six year, $140 million contract to which the Nats signed him uh, as a free agent in December 2018. Patrick Corbin is not part of the Nats' long term future, but he is doing well in the present. And both he and the organization deserve credit for that. But uh, do not get seduced by what Patrick Corbin is doing. The Nats need to stay committed to the mission, and the mission uh, is the rebuild. And if Corbin continues to rehab his stock off, of course, three consecutive bad seasons, uh, the last two of which were horrendous seasons, his 2021 and 2022 seasons, then the Nats absolutely need to be open uh, to selling the stock at its increased value. So it's going to be interesting to see if, in fact, Patrick Corbin can continue to pitch well to where he does become a viable trade ship for our rebuilding nats. Uh, And then there was Jake Irvin in the 8-6 loss to the Tigers on Friday night. Irvin got rocked. Uh, He allowed six runs, four earned, in two and two-thirds innings. He gave up five hits, two home runs, and three singles. He issued four walks and a wild pitch. He over his two and two-thirds innings threw 75 pitches, which consisted of just... 38 strikes versus 37 balls. Uh, and Irvin committed a fielding error <laughs> in the Tigers' three-run first. Not much went well for Jake Irvin on Friday night. And then on Saturday, the Nats reinstated pitcher Chad Cool from the 15-day injured list, which he had been on since May 1st, retroactive to April 30th with a right foot injury. Uh, the corresponding roster move was the Nats' optioning reliever Hobie Harris, Triple A Rochester. Uh, David Martinez, during his pregame press conference on Saturday afternoon, did say that Jake Irvin is staying in the Nats rotation and that Chad Cool is going to the bullpen. And David did say that the Nats want to give Irvin a longer look in the rotation and that Irvin has a lot of upside. Uh, all of that to me is good. I mean, personally, I want Jake Irvin staying in the rotation. I don't have much appetite for Chad Cool. Being back in the rotation, Chad Cool in this regular season, five starts, an ERA of 9.41, a WHIP of 1.95. Now we all have sympathy and compassion for what Chad Cool is going through. Uh, his wife Amanda is dealing with breast cancer. But, you know, saying that you want Jake Irvin over Chad Cool in the Nats rotation isn't anything but a baseball conversation. And especially given that the Nats, again, are a rebuilding team, uh, let's not be in a rush to yank Jake Irvin from the Nats rotation. And it doesn't sound like the Nats are in a rush uh, to yank Irvin from the rotation. Interesting situation with the Nats' bullpen right now. Uh, Davey Martinez is going back and forth between Kyle Finnegan and Hunter Harvey to close games. So we had what happened in the Nats' 5 4 walk off loss at the Miami Marlins this past Tuesday evening. Uh, Davey in that game used Finnegan for the eighth and Harvey for the ninth in a flip flopping uh, from what Davey had been doing. Uh, Kyle Finnegan in that game was used to pitch the bottom of the eighth with the Nats having just taken a 4 2 lead and the Marlins numbers 5 6 and 7 batters do up. Finnegan uh, gave up a first pitch leadoff single by Brian De La Cruz to left center field, then gave up an infield single by Gene Segura on a swinging bunt toward third base on an 0-2 pitch, but Finnegan did then strike out Peyton Burdick despite initially committing a pitch clock violation, Uh, and then Finnegan generated an inning-ending double play on a grounder by Nick Fortes. But then Hunter Harvey blew the save chance in the bottom of the ninth, uh, during which he allowed. Three runs and recorded just two outs. He gave up a two-out walk-off. Full count, two-run homer by Jorge Soler to left field for a 5-4 Marlins win. Finnegan and Harvey did not pitch in the game again until the 5-2 win over the Tigers on Saturday. Each guy in that game was good. Uh, Harvey tossed a perfect top of the eighth. Finnegan tossed a perfect top of the ninth, and no, Harvey was back to pitching the eighth, and Finnegan was back to pitching the ninth. But then, in the 6 4 win over the Tigers on Sunday afternoon, Davey Martinez went to Kyle Finnegan in the sixth. Uh, Andres Machado was a disaster in what ended up being a two run six for the Tigers, cutting. That adds lead to 6-3. Machado faced five batters, recorded just one out, gave up a first-pitch leadoff homer by Nick Maton, two singles and a walk. Machado threw 19 pitches, a mere eight strikes versus 11 balls. And so Davey Martinez then brought in Kyle Finnegan. And he ultimately allowed one run, unearned, in one and two-thirds innings, Finnegan came into the game in the top of the sixth with runners at the corners, went out and the Nats nursing a 6-3 lead, and Finnegan sandwiched two outs around a walk, and then Finnegan in the top of the seventh allowed an unearned run on a leadoff hit by pitch, a throwing error by first baseman Dominic Smith on a high throw to second base on a fielder's choice grounder, and an RBI ground out. Uh, that cut the Nats' lead to 6-4. Uh, then Carl Edwards Jr. tossed a perfect top of the eighth. Edwards had a good weekend. Uh, he had been struggling, but Edwards, uh, in that win on Saturday, tossed a scoreless top of the seventh. And Hunter Harvey, uh, he in this win on Sunday afternoon, a perfect top of the ninth with two strikeouts. Uh, bottom line, I don't think that the Nats have a designated closer right now. And that's just fine. Uh, Davey Martinez seems to view Kyle Finnegan and Hunter Harvey as in adds top two relievers. And Davies deploying them as uh, he sees fit, given circumstances and matchups. And I have no problem with that. Uh, the idea that you have to have an eighth inning guy and you have to have a ninth inning guy, that's antiquated. Uh, you should have an ace reliever or ace relievers And you should be willing to deploy the ace reliever or ace relievers uh, in whatever situations that you deem crucial, uh, what are known as high leverage situations. And Davey essentially said this during his postgame press conference on Sunday afternoon. This was Davey on why he and that win on Sunday afternoon went to Finnegan in the sixth.
3: For me, it was it was a it was a big turning point right there. I mean, they had momentum. And uh, we had we had a, we had to stop the fire. I mean, we really did. So um, we got him up really quick. Um, he came out and like you know, as like I said, he he shut it down right there. And he comes out the next inning uh, and keeps us right there. And then you know he comes in and he says, "I could go one more." And I said, um, "You're done." I mean, that's that, that was playing. That was awesome. You know, so but that that was all that was awesome. Like I said, for me that was that was a pivoting point of the game right there, to, for us for him to come down, and shut that inning down.
1: Yeah, you know Kyle Finnegan is not having some great season. Uh, Finnegan for this regular season has an ERA of five and a WHIP of one seventy two. But in theory, he is one of the Nats' top relievers. And uh, Davey Martinez on Sunday afternoon went to Finnegan in the sixth. And generally speaking, I like a manager operating that way with his bullpen, being willing to use his top relievers in spots other than the traditional eighth and ninth innings. Uh, No game for the Nats on Monday. Next up for them is a three-game series against outfielder Juan Soto and the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park. Game one, Tuesday night at 7.05, Mackenzie Gore will be the Nats starting pitcher. Game two, Wednesday night at 7.05, Trevor Williams will be the Nats starting pitcher. And game three, Thursday afternoon at 4.05, Jake Irvin will be the Nats starting pitcher. All right, so we on this podcast have been tracking how the Orioles are doing in the midst of this stretch of 22 consecutive games against teams that at the start of the stretch all had winning records for this 2023 regular season. The O's now are 16 games into this 22 game stretch. The O's over these 16 games are 10 and 6. Not too shabby. Uh, the O's over the weekend authored a three-game sweep at the Toronto Blue Jays. Friday night, a 6-2 win. Saturday, a 6-5, 10-inning win as the O's overcame a 5-2, eighth inning deficit. And Sunday afternoon, an 8-3, 11-inning win. As the O's, Joe Angel, again, were in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. That is correct, Joe. The win column. Uh, the O's now are 31 and 16. That is the second best record in the majors. Only the Tampa Bay Rays are better. Uh, their record is 34 and 14. So many big performances and clutch moments for the O's in this three game sweep at the Blue Jays. How about Cedric Mullins in this 8 3 11 inning win? On Sunday afternoon, Mullins, as the Orioles' starting center fielder and number one batter, went five for six. Is that good? Five for six with a two-run double, another double, an RBI single, and two other singles. He went one for two on stolen bases. Mullins, in an Orioles' five-run 11th, had a two-out full count, two-run double to the right center field gap for an 8-3 Orioles lead. Cedric Mullins is having a great month of May. He for this month of May has an on-base percentage of .370 and a slugging percentage of .613. And Mullins for this regular season is number one among all qualified Orioles players in OPS at .876 and in slugging percentage at .509. Uh, Also on Sunday afternoon, Terran Vavra. I love that name, Terran Vavra. (laughs) He and that Orioles five-run 11th had a pinch-went-out first pitch, two-run opposite-field single- the left center field for a 6-3 Orioles lead. Uh, now, interestingly, the O's acquired Terran Vavra uh, from the Colorado Rockies as part of a package for reliever Michael Givens in a trade on August 30th, 2020. Well, Givens now is back with the O's, and he on Sunday actually made his 2023 Major League regular season debut. Uh, more on Michael Givens in a bit, but there were plenty of other offensive heroes for the O's in this series. Uh, the 6-5-10 inning win on Saturday, Ryan O'Hearn, who? What? Yeah, Ryan O'Hearn. Uh, he is the Orioles' starting DH and number 7 batter. Went 3-for-5 with a 3-run homer, an RBI single, and another single. Uh, O'Hearn, in the top of the 8th, smashed a 2-out 3-run homer to right center field to tie the game at 5. Uh, the homer winner projected 406 feet per stat cast. The O's purchased O'Hearn, bottom from the Kansas City Royals, This past January, this season is O'Hearn's age 29 season. I mean, you think about what the O's are doing here, the likes of Terran Vavra and Ryan O'Hearn coming through for the O's in a big three-game sweep at the Blue Jays. The O's in their 6-2 win on Friday night hit three home runs. Ryan Mountcastle on Friday night as the Orioles starting first baseman and number three batter. One for three with a three-run homer and a walk. Mountcastle ended Orioles three-run third. A one-out three-run homer to center field for a 3-1 Orioles lead. The homer went a projected 419 feet per stat cast. And Anthony Santander he on Friday night as the Orioles starting DH and number four batter, one for two with a solo homer and two walks. Uh, he in an Orioles one run six, hit a leadoff full count homer to right field for a 4-1 Orioles lead. Uh, now that homer went a projected 347 feet for Statcast. That's it, 347 feet. But a homer is a homer, and uh, that was a homer. The O's for this 2023 regular season are ninth in the majors in Team OPS At 757. So the offense is good. May not always feel like it, but the Orioles' offense is good. Uh, the O's in this three-game sweep at the Blue Jays got uh, solid, if not good, starting pitching. Uh, Kyle Gibson in game one was good for a second time in three starts. Gibson in the 6-2 win on Friday night, one run in seven innings. Uh, he gave up just five hits, a double and four singles, issued two walks and a wild pitch, recorded five strikeouts. So he threw 95 pitches, 59 strikes versus 36 balls. Grayson Rodriguez in game two bounced back from what was a hideous start. Uh, Rodriguez in the Orioles' 9-5 loss to the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards last Monday evening, May 15th, eight runs in three and third innings, but uh, Grayrod in this uh, 6-5-10 inning win at the Blue Jays on Saturday, a lot better, two runs in five innings with six strikeouts. Uh, he gave up just four hits, although three of them were extra base hits as he gave up a homer, two doubles, and a single, but he issued just one walk. He through, 91 pitches, 54 strikes, versus 37 balls. And Dean Kramer in Game 3 was at least solid for a fourth consecutive start. Kramer in the 8-3-11 inning win on Sunday afternoon. One run in five and a third innings with seven strikeouts, although he did give up nine hits, which consisted of a homer, two doubles, and six singles. And he did issue two walks, so he threw 105 pitches, 64 strikes, versus 41 balls. But Dean Kramer over his first six starts of this regular season had an ERA of 667. Uh, Kramer now over his last four starts has an ERA of 196. We call that improvement. Uh, this was O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday on Dean Kramer.
3: Really impressed with Dean. I just, Dean's just getting better for me. Um, home run to Chapman and that's it. Uh, I think he's getting more confidence with that two seam versus a team that you really have to be able to run the ball to both sides of the plate. And I thought he did that well.
1: Um, I thought his cutter was good, again. Um, But just for me, he's just learning how to pitch every time out and to be able to get in the sixth inning there with only giving up a run, um, seven punch outs, it's, it's pretty good. Yes, it is. Uh, As for the Orioles bullpen in this three-game sweep at the Blue Jays, uh, well, the Orioles bullpen, which has been leaned on quite a bit uh, so far this season, did have some problems, but the bullpen also came through with some big outs. Uh, The 6-2 win on Friday night, two Orioles relievers combined to allow one run in two innings, and the one run was given up by Yanir Cano, who, yes, is human. Uh, Yanir Cano, in the bottom of the eighth, allowed a run on a single, a ground rule double, and an RBI ground out, marking the first run that he allowed over 18 games since being recalled from Triple A Norfolk on April 14th. But Felix Batista on Friday night, a scoreless bottom of the ninth with two strikeouts, although he did issue a one-out walk and did give up a two-out single. The 6-5, 10-inning win on Saturday. Five Orioles relievers combined to allow three runs in five innings. Brian Baker, Mike Bauman, and Cole Irvin, uh, they combined to allow three runs over the sixth and seventh innings but Yanir Cano tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth and Felix Batista was outstanding two scoreless innings with five strikeouts he began the bottom of the ninth by giving up a single and a walk but then generated three consecutive outs including two strikeouts the first of which was a four-pitch swinging strikeout of the Blue Jays number two batter Beau Bichette and Batista in a perfect bottom of the tenth generated three swinging strikeouts uh, and then the 8-3-11 inning win on Sunday afternoon. Five Orioles relievers combined to allow two runs, one earned in five and two-thirds innings. The hero was Mike Bauman, who had been struggling lately, but Bauman on Sunday faced four batters, got five outs for the win. And also in this game was Michael Gibbons making his 2023 Major League regular season debut. Uh, now, Gibbons in the bottom of the seventh, the latter run, to tie the game at two, uh, the O's on Sunday morning reinstated Gibbons from the 15-day entered list, which he had been on since March 30th, retroactive to March 27th with left knee inflammation. Uh, the corresponding roster move was the O's optioning pitcher Cole Irvin back to A Norfolk. Uh, but what a series for the O's. What a season that the O's are having. Long way to go, obviously, but I mean, so much to like if you are an Orioles fan right now. And You know, you take a step back, the job that Orioles Executive Vice President and General Manager Mike Elias has done in rebuilding this team is nothing short of spectacular. And we on this podcast have talked about the job that Elias has done, and we have talked about the criticism that Mike Elias took for the way that the O's went about their rebuild. Uh, You know, the all-out, no-apologies tank job in order to rebuild this thing from its foundation. Uh, The losing was painful, no doubt, but the rebuild has worked. Okay. Now we'll see if the O's end up winning anything long-term. I understand that. But the idea of a rebuild is to load up your team with promising young talent and to get good in the regular season. And the O's right now are oozing young promising talent and for now are good in the regular season. Second best record in the majors. The critics of the Orioles' rebuild are uh, looking increasingly foolish. All of the complainers about the rebuild, at least right now, uh, looking quite bad. Uh, no game for the O's on Monday. But next up for them is a three-game series at the New York Yankees, uh, who are three games behind the O's for second in the American League East. So this is another big series. Uh, game one, Tuesday night at 7.05. Kyle Bradish will be the Orioles starting pitcher and Hillipo's Yankees ace Garrett Cole. Game two, Wednesday night at 7.05, Tyler Wells will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And game three, Thursday night at 7.05, Kyle Gibson will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 578. We'll have plenty for you on the commanders as we shall see what, if anything, of significance for the team comes from day one of the NFL's spring league meeting, which is scheduled for Monday through Wednesday, May 22nd through the 24th in Minneapolis. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday.
6: One of the more notable names, and I'm going to have to look it up and so I can say it properly,
3: but he's a young man we got out of UCLA. Uh, UCLA. Uh, he'll wear number 10 out there, Allen Casimir.
5: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early
2: so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus,